This is episode 150. Welcome to the show under a slightly changed title, Tommy's Outdoors, Conservation and Science. Those of you who follow me on social media may have noticed that I run a survey, actually two surveys related to the new title. First one was sent to a selected group of uh, people, uh, old listeners, people who are with me for a long time. And the second one was uh, open for all. And those surveys were to gauge um, your opinion about the new title of a podcast. Uh, I feel like my show outgrew the original name and it doesn't really describe what we talk about here on the podcast. And the reason for changing the name is basically to help more people find this show, to, to help more people who are interested in conservation and science to find this podcast where we talk mainly about conservation and science. So we have this new title. I, I will roll with this new title for the next uh, number of weeks, months maybe, and we see how it goes. And if you want to have your say and express your opinion, I link that survey in the description of the show. So by all means, go in there and let me know what you think. Second, I am looking forward to meeting you all, actually not all, but of those of you who bought the tickets, in Oxfordshire uh, for the environmental debate, live and unscripted. Uh, this is going to be a fun event, and I'm going to be talking there about whether it is possible to consume meat while having the environment and animal welfare at the forefront of your mind. I'm sure it's going to be fun debate. Uh, eating meat and nutrition are somehow the two of the most controversial subjects on the entire internet. So uh, I'm sure we have a lot of fun uh, discussing those things. So uh, if you have a ticket, I'm looking forward to meeting you there. And if you don't have a ticket, I think they're all sold out now. Um, so next time. In this episode of the podcast, we are going to talk about predator control, especially as it relates to ground-nesting birds. To discuss this uh, uncomfortable and maybe even controversial subject, I am joined by Barry McMahon, Associate Professor at Wildlife Conservation and Zoonotic Epidemiology of University College Dublin. And um, for those of you who are interested in this subject, to go deeper into this subject outside of what we're going to discuss on the podcast, I compile an extensive list of peer-reviewed research as well as popular, popular articles uh, for those of you who want to read more. And to access that list, you need to subscribe to my newsletter. So I do this for every episode of the podcast for people who are interested in the subject. Uh, they can further they uh, their knowledge or, or explore it a little bit more with some additional materials. And those additional materials are always in the newsletter. So go into the description of the show, newsletter.tomisoutdoors.com. The link is there. And uh, pop your email address and you will get, uh, you know, every two weeks, roughly, an email to your inbox where you are going to be notified about new episodes of the podcast. You will have access to additional materials related to the subject of the podcast, as well as some other informations, like, for example, live events, like the one that I mentioned earlier, okay? So uh, subscribe to that newsletter. It is a great help uh, to me and to the podcast. And this is also a great way to stay in touch uh, with me and with the subjects we talk about here on the podcast. For sure, it's way better 
than social media, okay? So um, that's it for this introduction. And now, without any further delay, we are going to talk about predator control, ground nesting birds with Professor Barry McMahon. Barry, welcome to the show. It's good to have you. Tommy, thanks very much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, I appreciate your time. Um, listen, we have a we have a subject. I need I need to start with that. We have a subject of uh, predator control. Do you feel like this is kind of like a loaded, kind of uh, you know contentious subject? I think it's uncomfortable for some, um, and I and I understand that because. You know, principally as well, if you come from a from a conservation background and you're interested in conserving things, it's sort of counterintuitive or it's not obvious that one of your actions would involve removing uh, a selection of species. But I think the more you get into conservation, particularly in modern day landscapes and particularly in modern day landscapes in Europe, the harder it is to avoid. So... I don't necessarily see it as um, being contentious. I see it as being uncomfortable because it's not particularly nice and that's not really why any of us got into the business uh, originally for, you know? I think you put it that very well. Uh, it's just uncomfortable and, you know, because I was just wondering whether this, this episode is even going to happen. And by the way, shout out to Susan Doyle, who was presenting on a, on a conference. And I understand, you know, when you're talking to other scientists and you're presenting your results, then you're kind of like a more comfortable. And then all of a sudden the guy shows up like myself. Oh, what do you do? You want to be on the podcast? And I imagine there's like all sorts of red flags. Like, oh my God, what is this guy about? Yeah. And that's, that's one of the reasons why Susan isn't here actually is because I had said, you know, would you like to, would you like to talk to Tommy? And she said, well, you know, I think you'd be a lot more appropriate talking to him considering your experience and all the rest. And I, you know, Susan will be well able to talk to you about this. Again, it's just, uh, it's got to do with people feeling more comfortable and less exposed, if you like, to, to saying the wrong thing or uh, being accused of coming from particular prerogatives. And that's, yes. you know, that's one of the reasons why I'm here. No, I, I, I understand. I fully understand that, you know, you can, you can handle Tommy. <laughs> yeah, no, Susan's a brilliant scientist, you know, and she would be well oh, able presentation to. presentation was yeah. brilliant. I loved it. I loved yeah. it. Yeah. So. Look, um, so maybe in a, you know, a few words of introduction, if you can, for our listeners, you know, who you are, uh, you, you know, what is your, your research, what you're taking on just to give people a little bit of a background. Okay, so Tommy, I basically, uh, I'm an associate professor in UCD and I I suppose I sit in three different areas that are all sort of related. The first is sort of conservation of wildlife species, mainly birds and agricultural ecosystems. That's that's the first one. The second one is uh, looking at uh, zoonotic disease emergence. So diseases humans contract from animals 
usually looking at those from again from agricultural ecosystems and then i sort of try and blend all this together by looking at how uh conflicts arise within different systems mainly agricultural ecosystems and again one of the activities that we have in ucd here is that we have a master's program that tries to tries to capture those three things and they're quite unique in terms of the blend of activity so in terms of um you know dealing with uh, conservation and agricultural systems dealing with xenotic spillover and where xenosis emerged from and then managing how uh, conflicts might arise from that. Because, you know, for example, in the in the first category in relation to agricultural systems, people have different views as to what those agricultural systems should be doing. And out of those different views, there is conflict arising. Um, xenotic spillover, as we know from recently, you know, be, people have views on certain animals in terms of their risk and how they relate to risk of humans acquiring specific diseases and that's wrapped up in in conflict as well so i suppose it's over the years the evolution of my interest in conflicts is because of the necessity to be able to actually deal with the core issues in conservation and zoonosis yeah, uh, Barry, that already sounds like we material for at least three other podcasts <laughs> straight away. Um, listen, it is it is great to have you then, and and th let's talk about predator control. And I was just curious, like, what was the um, motivation behind this uh, this this study or this paper? The paper was published in twenty twenty, I think. Um, but I was I'm curious, like, you know, what was the the factor that uh, you decided uh, to to write this paper and do some data analysis related to abundance of the generalist predators and their impact on the birds and ground nesting birds specifically. Okay, so Tommy, this could take a while because uh, this is a almost a long story. So it goes back to when I was doing my PhD and when we were collecting data on farmland birds and I was doing farmland bird surveys. The, when you look at uh, grassland systems, which is mainly what agricultural systems uh, are in a, in an Irish context, we weren't recording any ground nesting birds. So there was very, very few of these species being recorded in general. And this is the mainstream land use in Ireland. So if the mainstream land use in Ireland that isn't uh, suitable habit, providing suitable habitat for these species, you have a problem. I had also had sort of personal experiences when I'd been fishing uh, in the west of Ireland on the Moy. I remember in 1989, I was fishing away and the place was reverberating with corncrake and curlew. And when I went back to those spots, not that long afterwards, probably about 10 years afterwards, in or around the time that I was finishing my, my undergrad uh, in UCD here, all those, all those birds were gone. So there was something happening in that in that process, and I'd seen it in my own field work, and I'd seen it in different landscapes as well from from mainstream agriculture. What my PhD was around sort of production agricultural system. So, and I, I, that was that was there in the background. That was always an an issue that we had in an Irish context. And I remember walking through uh, Bora in County Offaly where the place was basically alive with ground nesting bird species um, through a range of different initiatives, 
led by National Parks and Wildlife Services and also at the time by the Irish Great Partridge Conservation Trust. And I was walking through the, that system and there was like uh, skylarks and lapwing and we didn't see that many partridges, but they were we knew they were there. And I was talking to a colleague of mine, Steve Redpath, who's from the UK. And we said, you know, we have to write something about this because it's quite clear that um, there is something going on here that isn't going on in the rest of the country that means that there is these ground nesting bird species. So that was that was the driver and that was about 2016. So with the speed that academic research happens, by 2020 we, we had eventually got to the point where we were able to write the paper, but we had gone through lots of different, um, I suppose, discussions as to how you know, was it the case the predator control was good for these grain nesting birds or was it the case that predators were bad for these grain nesting birds, if you like? And um, we sort of came up with the hypothesis that if you were a grain nesting bird, you were more likely to be predated uh, and therefore you were more likely to be in decline. And um, that was that is basically what the, the nub of the paper is about. And... If you again go back to some of the oranges, origins of these challenges around grey nesting birds, it's not that habitat degradation uh, is not important. It's clearly important. I mean, it's one of the main drivers of these of these declines that we've seen in Britain and Ireland. That the changes in the the land use are there, from like species rich rich meadows to sort of in, intensive sort of uh, perennial ryegrass silage fields, um, which are not going to not going to be good for grain nesting birds at all. But that's not the case. It's more the case that we are now showing that these new systems are not suitable for grain nesting birds to persist into the future. That's sort of the the, the take home message around it. Tell me, you know, I just want to start with, you know, laying out like a background on the methodology and. Uh, you know, make sure that everybody who listens to that is satisfied that we're talking about proper scientific approach to the uh, subject. Um, so if you can just lay it out for the, you know, lay person, how did you approach the gathering data and then analysis of the data? So we looked at sort of t- at two um, sources of data. The one was the Atlas data from the last 20 years. So the bird Atlas data published by a collection of uh, authors from uh, the BTO in the UK to Birdwatch Ireland in in Ireland, and we looked at the declines or the increases, the trends essentially over the last twenty years of the of all the bird species, all the terrestrial bird species. So we weren't looking at creatures that use um, islands or seabirds; we were looking at terrestrial bird species. And we uh, basically assigned a value that was in the bird atlas and said, was this creature increasing or decreasing? And then we looked at whether it was an agricultural species or not, whether it was a annex species or not. So if it was covered by the uh, birds directive under special protection areas for birds. So those are the, the three main parameters with which we we test it, okay? Um, 
Um, we did that for the Atlas data for Brit for Britain, for mainland Britain, for Ireland. And then we used a sort of a compound data set for across Europe, which is the pan-European bird uh, monitoring data set, uh, which looks at, I think it's 100 and, I think it was 171 species uh, across Europe. And again, it was the same, exactly the same idea. Was the species, what was the species increasing or decreasing? Was it a agricultural species? Was it a um, species that occurred that had an SPA associated with it, special protection area? And and we tested those again. We tested those parameters. So those are the two major sources of the data. So they're really well established methods for looking at the trends. So the trend data are really good um, in terms of the, the outcome. And then the classifications were uh, quite clear cut as well. So if we used a um, we used the Tucker and Heath method to classify whether it was an agricultural species and then the, the annex species are, are listed under the annex one species are listed under the birds directive. So that's pretty straightforward as well. So it was all pretty clear cut. It's all fairly rudimentary in terms of the, the way it was classified. So that's it, the population trends. Yes, they were and the now, So how now the those generalist predators coming into picture? The general predators, the generalist predators that were coming in was basically, I suppose, in terms of the actual association with it, it was an inference to be able to say that if you were a species that is in decline, that you are more likely to be predated because you were on the because you nest on the ground. So that's what we were saying, that the the, the the data indicate, again, a paper by Stefan Roos published in 2018 uh, showed that there was a generalist increase in predator numbers across Europe. So this was a sort of an inference to say, so this was like an association. There's not absolute X and Y data to say this is the case, but it's more the case of we're saying that if you're a ground nesting bird, you're more likely to be in decline. And there is also data to show that generalist predators are in the increase across the areas where some of these data were collected, like in Britain and in Europe. Gotcha, gotcha. And did you did you get any input uh, in terms of comparison of the population in the areas where the predators are controlled? If there is a lethal predator control versus no, you know, sort of. Uh, boots on the ground kind of approach. That's a that's a good question and it's something we're trying to do a fo we're we're attempting to do a follow-up study. So Tommy re really what one of the things that we would say the 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 outputs of the study was to say that you really need proper design experiments to be able to show where this is done and some some studies like Kathy Fletcher's study has shown um that where does sort of systematic predator control compared to where there's no systematic predator control on gr certain grouse moors that it's better for certain wader species. Uh, so for, for golden plover and for, for lapwing. Um, they tested it for curlew as well, but it wasn't, they, they couldn't pick up a signature from it. So um, that's one of the findings that we would say that you need more of that. Uh, we, we think that there's organizations in Britain and in Ireland and probably across Europe that can do those types of studies. I, unfortunately, I can't do that type of study because I don't have a large scale site to be able to carry out an experiment like that. But it's one of the things that we feel is really needed uh, in terms of actually 
you know, unequivocally showing that there's an association or maybe there's not an association between um, generalist predators and certain bird species, particularly ones that nest in the red. I'm sure there's a few people who are listening to this podcast who are members of those organizations. So they might, you know, raise, yeah. their, raise their hand and uh, help out because I'm, I'm sure. And the, the other thing that's really important, and this is something I've listened to other experts. I remember listening to uh, Ian Newton, who some of your some of your listeners might know as one of the sort of the finest researchers in terms of understanding predation. What he was saying was what's happened across the European landscapes and particularly in Britain and Ireland is that the degradation of the habitats has really meant that there's been a loss of uh, ground nesting bird species. And this has been exacerbated by, this has been made worse by the fact that predator, predators can operate better in these suboptimal ha- habitats. And that the reversal of these declines of ground nesting birds does not mean, or it will not happen if you just reverse the processes. We need to actually buy time by using predator control in order to reverse the habitats. But it's not going to happen the other way around. Because if we wait for the other way around, if we wait for the habitats to recover, the birds will be gone. So if you look at an example of that, would be would be curlew in Ireland. Curlew will be gone in a number of years, probably less than six or seven years. So we're not going to be able to restore the habitat in that time period. You kind of like okay, jump ahead and and uh, because that was my next question, maybe not right. next question, <laughs> but what you know, one of the questions. Um, because that's a, often an argument that, that you hear from the, let's say, opponents of, uh, in their quotes, of uh, lethal predator control, right? Like, oh, this is not the problem, you know, the, the, the habitat, this and that. So you're clearly saying that the, the process of restoring a habitat needs time, and we don't have that time. Is, is that right? I don't, I don't believe so, no. Not seeing the nature of the declines of some of these creatures. I mean, just look at the speed at which curly have vanished. You know, curly vanished within, you know, one and a half sort of time series of when the Atlas data was collected. Within the space of 30 years, it was gone, you know, by 98%. Um, so that's that's an enormous reversal to, tie, to try and catapult via habitat alteration because um, like these landscapes that we've created, these anthropogenic landscapes where there's intensive agriculture and you have maybe uh, increased edges because of forestry, uh, plantation forestry. Again, these are perfect scenarios for, for, for predators. Even looking in our, even looking in our cities, yesterday I was, I was driving around uh, the campus here and it's absolutely perfect conditions for for predators and it's not it's not their fault <laughs> they're, they're just doing very very well in our landscapes um but there's literally flocks of gray crows and it hasn't even we haven't even reached the situation where uh, they've fledged any young you know so that's that's just the way it is and again these are remarkable creatures in terms of their biology in terms of their uh, dare I say their intellect how smart they are um but if we want the other creatures, if we want skylarks, if you want, you know, quinchat, if you want curlew, if you want any of these um, 
Grenis and Birds, you're going to have to basically face up to the fact that there's going to be predator control, control required. Yeah. At least in the short term. Absolutely. To, to... At least in the short term. Yeah. At least in the short term. Uh, Barry, can you tell us what are the factors that cause those generalist predators to do so good? Um, and then maybe what are the factors? And are there the same factors that are unfavorable in terms of the habitat for those non ground nesting birds? It's exactly the, it's exactly that. So, I mean, one study that we looked at was, um, was like edge effects in relation to, uh, hen harrier numbers. Okay. So hen harrier is, is actually a classic gray nesting bird, the way that it behaves in, in many respects. All right. So we looked at an area of breeding birds, breeding harriers in the center of Ireland, in uh, the Schlieblin National Park, in conjunction with the National Parks and Wildlife Services. And the creatures that really enjoy habitats where there's uh, interspersion, so there's a mixture and there's a, sh a different sort of positioning of various different habitats, which creates lots of edge, and it creates habitat types like, again, coniferous forestry. I'm not just having to go a coniferous forestry for the sake of it, but it's a, just a good example of where coniferous forestry provides a reservoir habitat where you have a habitat for foxes and you have habitats for creatures like grey crows and for magpies. So they really enjoy those types of edge habitats. They're, they're edge species where other species like uh, hen harrier are species that really, it's not that they, they, they like basically uniform habitats by and large. That's what our data would show that the further th that the birds selected their nest site from the edge of a forestry uh, location, the more likely they were to be successful and the more likely they were to have more young. Okay. So that's the, that's the thing. It's that that it's that it creates, you know, these sort of interspersion and juxtaposition of different habitats that create the exactly the habitat the grey nesting birds don't like, and it creates exactly the habitat that the uh, generalist predators do like. Yeah, and yeah. that's just the just just the way that it is. What are the is it because the one of the other other arguments is often heard is like oh there's also a lot of like a supplemental feeding available to those predators, the uh, pheasant releases. I don't know if pheasant releases going on in Ireland, probably, you know, very little compared to what's going on in Britain. I think there's then, some, yeah. Yeah, so is that is that a huge factor or is it mainly habitat? But I, I, from, from my understanding, and I'm perfectly open to criticism here, the numbers of pheasants that are being released in Ireland is quite small. And um, there is a, a massive debate going on in the UK, uh, which is ongoing in relation to, you know, the biomass of these creatures. Um, but interestingly enough, Tommy, if you look at the, if you look at the outputs from the, from the data set, you know, Ireland is worse than the UK. Yes, I I so, noticed that in the, in the paper. And by the way, folks, we're going to link the paper in the in the show notes, so anyone who's interested should go there and and then read the entire paper. So yeah, so g coming back to what you said, is it's much worse than that. Like, why is it? Um, I think there's probably there is. I, I I suspect it's because there's less management 
if any, really for 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 these species. Whereas at least some of the um, management for game birds would de- benefit um, some of the, many of these ground nesting birds. This isn't tested. This is just a an inclination again. So this is, wouldn't be definitive um, in terms of the uh, in terms of being able to test it. You know. Okay. Okay, one more, one more of the classic arguments. Oh, we need wolves. We need to release wolves and lynx, and they're gonna control foxes. And we need the eagles. They're gonna control other birds. How much truth is in that? And how provided? You know, like let's forget about all the other difficulties in doing so. If we were to release top predators, you know, tomorrow, would that make a difference? Or is it, you know, too too little and too it would take too long, like in the habit in the case of habitat? Honestly, I, I don't I don't know. I've seen data in other different parts of the world, like in um, in in Castilla La Mancha and in uh, Extremadura in Spain, where they've reintroduced lynx, and it's had a, a a huge effect in terms of just changing the the dynamics. Um, there's a couple of different questions that you need to put forward. So, you know, to answer your question, it probably would have an effect. I mean, introducing a creature like that, particularly in suffi- sufficient numbers, would have a massive effect. Um, in terms of actually it happening, I mean, I think we really, really struggled with the reintroduction of some of our large raptors. So I think, you know, it's it would take a lot of greasing of the wheels to enable and to actually feel that it's the appropriate thing to do, bearing in mind that the major land landowner and the major stakeholder in relation to this process would be farmers, and many of these farmers would have livestock that uh, they would feel threatened by having uh, lynx and wolves. Now, some of your listeners might say about how they should or they shouldn't feel. That is most likely how they feel. So if you want to be an effective conservationist. You deal with the realities. You don't deal with how things should be. So that would be my initial sort of sense of it. And I mean, generally, in in, a, in an overall sort of solution-driven world, you have to get farmers on board in relation to this. I mean, I'm really lucky. I work in the School of Agriculture and Food Science in University College Dublin. So I get to talk to people all the time who's prerogative is about production agriculture okay so uh, uh, and if you're working in conservation in Ireland and you're not having those conversations well then it's very difficult for you to be able to at least empathize with individuals who are trying to try to make a living and trying to produce food because the reason why we've created these landscapes that are uniform and not very good for ground nesting bird is because we're, we're producing food we're trying to produce more food so and um, that to go back to your original question, it, it might be a great idea ecologically, but we live in a socio-ecological system and you would have to take into account the major stakeholder and those are the farmers. And I suspect if you did a straw poll and any of the times that we've done exercises in relation to this, it, it's not we're not there yet. It doesn't mean that we wouldn't we couldn't be there, but it would take a lot of discussing, it would take a lot of um sitting down and talking about the problems i i heard i heard a really really good analogy so some of my colleagues have discussed this um that 
I think it was John Hume said when, when they were dealing with the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland, which, you know, is an appropriate time at the moment uh, to, to discuss this idea. If you're dealing with something like reintroducing wolves or lynx, it's actually not about a solution. It's about a process. So you need a process by which you could reintroduce the, the wolves, not a solution because it's never ending. And human wildlife conflict never ends. It's always ongoing. So you need to be able to continue that conversation rather than say, draw a line under it and go, that's it. We're going to do A, B or C. And that's the end of it. Right. That's exactly it. It's, it's like, I, I heard that quote and I, I keep repeating it on the podcast that conservation is managing conflict. And that's, that's essentially, that's essentially what's going on. Listen, so you have a, a pretty good insight also in the food production and, you know, impact of farming on the landscape and on the, on the wildlife. Would you, would you say that farming is a major factor, major driver of the biodiversity loss and, and, uh, you know, ground nesting birds and everything else? I think there's a, I think there's a couple of really important things. I think farming, farm policy has got a huge amount to do with it, the same way as sort of um, conservation policy is really important. So we, we've gone through a process, particularly with the common agricultural policy, by which we have seen various versions of it are better for facilitating biodiversity in production systems. So that's what I would say. I'd say, the, I'd say it's the farm policy. The farmers, particularly in relation to the size of farms in Ireland, so the average farm size in Ireland is about 32.7 hectares is the last time I checked. So it, it's about this idea of actually how do we enable these stakeholders, our farmers, to facilitate biodiversity through the policy instruments. And that's a, that's a very, very difficult thing to achieve because, you know, Europe is a big place. There's different countries with different systems, with different people, with different ideas of what wildlife should be like. And all that variation actually makes it really, it makes it really challenging. It means, it means we'll always be busy, but, um, I suppose that's the answer is I, I, I don't, I never really blame the farmer because I see how powerless in many respects some of the individuals are. Uh, like there are obviously, there are obviously great farmers who, not great, there's farmers who are so inclined to really facilitate biodiversity. Then there's a vast majority in the middle. And then there's a, a very small minority who unfortunately, those are the ones we hear most about, who, who aren't great and who violate some of the, the, the legislation, etc. But by and large, the big capture in the middle is facilitated by policy instruments. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had a I, I had a podcast where we were talking about the, the politics really of uh nature restoration in the EU. And you know, even it the 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 overwhelming kind of evidence is that farmers are kind of like a stuck in the middle. That you know, they they need to stay afloat and they're ultimately they're running business. And like you said, the policy is um making them so to say, you know, to, to be in the cycle of, of buying machinery and getting credits and paying off and so on and so on and so forth. And then like, oh, what about ground nesting birds? Like, so it's kind of like a tough, tough picture, like you said, on, on the farmers as well. Pretty much similar like with uh, fishing. I, again, like fish, fishermen, fishers don't want to catch fish. They don't want to catch, but still there's a bycatch and all these things. So 
I see kind of like a similar similarities here. Um, Barry, tell me when we come when it comes to predator control, like what was your what would be your recommendations or or maybe observations um, in terms of how to do that predator control? Because obviously. It's all good to say, yeah, we need to, you know, we need lethal control of predators in order to save those ground nesting birds. But then we open up the whole, you know, let's say kind of worms with, you know, how are you going to do this? Is this, you know, open up and free for all? Is this, you know, trained sharpshooters? Is this license? Uh, you know, are the trapping, snaring is, you know, in your view, uh, acceptable? Like how, how to organize that thing in in you know what curious of your comments yeah i suppose look my my view on the actual the practitioner element of it is that i'm not a practitioner so i i'm loathe to give directions in relation to that but i do know that there are organizations um within the mpws within the irish great partridge conservation trust within um, elements in the NARGC, etc. And there's other organizations that I have forgotten and I'm not trying to leave anyone out who would um, who would know the methods behind it, like the way in which you put out larsen traps, the way in which you ethically monitor larsen traps, the way in which you uh, lamp foxes, the way in which you might snare foxes, the way in which again you put out these traps and the way in which you, you um you you deal with actually the ethical systematic removal of predators because okay it has to be systematic uh, but there also has to be the appropriate professional way of doing it if you like so if you're if you're shooting if you're shooting foxes with a lamp you want someone who knows what they're doing there because you don't want to be uh, dealing with with uh, injured foxes because it's just that isn't it's not good for anyone it's um it's not the right approach in relation to having respect for the animals it's not the right approach in uh, relation to efficient time use etc so you really have to i suppose first and foremost uh, i would say even though i'm i'm not a, a an expert on the the practitioner you really have to have a genuine level of respect for the creature that you're trying to remove that's that's where you start, and that's where it finishes. Um, and then there are organisations that do facilitate training um, for individuals who want to uh, either, I suppose, practice in by virtue of the fact that they have land themselves, or they want to uh, input in relation to sort of gun club elements. But I would say it needs to be professional. That's that's the main thing because it, it is. It is a precise business and it is a systematic business. And if you don't treat it as such, uh, you will end up in ethical issues and you will end up in situations where you will not have appropriate removal of predators. So listen to colleagues who talk to me about this in the game and wildlife conservancy trust, um, who would, they would have a lot of experience with this. They would say the, the efficacy of your predator control is not how many animals you take out, it's how many you leave behind. Because you can leave one or two individuals behind who can cause a disproportionate amount of trouble in terms of, uh, in terms of you know, taking eggs or taking young or taking, uh, taking adults. So that's the way, I mean, I, as I said, I'm not a practitioner, but that's 
sort of the those are the general ideas in terms of efficacy in relation to efficiency and in relation to uh, professionalism and in terms of not leaving anything behind because the uh, the 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 predators that you leave behind are the ones that cause in problems. Well, that's that's interesting. Would it be your view that we need some level of monitoring of that removal? So, it w- w- is there a case in which uh, you know uncontrolled removal of predators would cause problems for you know number of foxes or number of crows and you know sort of thing? Or do you think that they're in such abundance and their habitat is so good for them that there's no risk like that? So one of the ways in which you could do it is you could measure the number of scats. So you could do these surveys of uh, mammal abundance, or you could do surveys of nest abundance of general of, of crows, uh, either magpies or grey crows, and then with uh, something like foxes, you could you could actually do scat surveys while you're in the process of removing the predators and see if you are actually getting a reduction in the signatures that there's many individuals there while the while the animals are being removed hmm. if you know what i mean yeah yeah so you're talking about the method so you're you're of the uh, of the view that that needs to be monitored as well i th- i think so it's because it's actually very it's really difficult and we've we've looked at some data on this uh it's really difficult to actually link removal of numbers of predators with response of your species that you're protecting because i've because i was saying to you already because you can have a small number of individuals that are doing a disproportionate amount of damage how come and um, because because they're opportunistic predators because they uh because you can have a situation where uh, as one individual explains to me one night that uh, they hadn't seen a fox in the site for six weeks and then they went into the site one evening in June and there was two foxes there. So those two foxes in, in, in one night could potentially do a huge amount of damage. Maybe I didn't ex- explain that properly um, because, and that's, that's what they mean. So it's, it's what you leave behind is the challenge. So that's, it's, it's extremely difficult. It's a, like that's what I'm saying. It's not an easy job but the evidence is that it works. Do you think that the people who are getting uncomfortable, like you said, I, I, I must use this, this, this term more often because it's really, really well, but like people who are uncomfortable with, with removal of predators, is, is this because they're, um, don't know, or they're not satisfied about those measures of, uh, you know, this stuff being done humanely done in the way the proper way so it's not going to cause any problems now for abundance of crows and other and other things do you think that if there were more people talking about these aspects of it uh then the the acceptance of the practice would be would be higher because you know quite often i see you know like the argument like oh you just want to kill stuff that's why you're making this argument right I th- I think first of all to go back to the to the point before there's very few really good studies that show the evidence of predator control. There's very few really good ones. So there's um, there's a the paper in 1996 uh, written by Tapper that f- shows predator control with uh, partridges working well. Um, then Kathy Fletcher has written a paper on grouse. I think it was uh, I. 
can't remember exactly what year it was. I think it was 2018. And she also wrote one in relation to waders in 2010. Also, since then, there's been a, a sort of a review paper. So all the literature that's been available, that there might be small signatures, so little hints of evidence of relation to the effectiveness of predator control, been published in a big document in 2018 by Stefan Roos and colleagues from the uh, Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. And that was really a, a, a landmark in terms of the fact where the RSPB had really stood forward and said, look, this is an issue that we need to deal, to deal with. Because, I, again, I've been having conversations with people since the mid, since the early to mid noughties about this. And there was definitely the the argument that this is a habitat issue, that we need to deal with the habitat and that there's, you know, predators are only a minuscule part of it. Whereas now I, I, f- I feel that this is actually a, a, a bigger realization. And I, I think one of the areas where it's really become apparent is with curly populations. Um, so to answer your question, I'm, you know, maybe the scientists have something to answer for in terms of actually producing the data, which really, really show it to, to be the case. Um, but in addition, the actual process and the mechanisms by which you need to go about to demonstrate the efficacy of the removal of predators and its response on site selection, on success, on abundance of juveniles produced, it's actually really difficult to do. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, combination, it's a combination of multiple different factors. But I think generally speaking, in terms of where we are now, um, the various organizations are finding it m- you know, more likely to get behind the idea because they realize their creatures are vanishing. How big of an impact is like a um, human disturbance in terms of dogs out of leash, you know, uh, trampling nests by sheep and stuff like that? Is that in a ballpark comparable to predation or is it just... So um, it's interesting you just, you you brought this up because I just wrote a small piece on this in the... um, in the conversation, and you can have a, a, a link to it if you so wish to, to go. Oh, I will. Uh, yeah, I loved it. I because, loved it. Yep. Um, because it's one of the things that we point out, uh, and this is this is one of the issues that you have to be aware of when you're even doing field work at this time of the year. So I have to be we have to be really really careful about disturbance because yeah, dogs, particularly they're saying dogs off a leash, are extremely damaging potentially in terms of the the amount of. Uh, disturbance they can give both directly in terms of flushing birds and wasting energy and removing you know brooding parents from 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 eggs and young etc now that's one thing to consider the other thing to consider is that as i mentioned to you before in relation to um the landscapes we've produced we've produced landscapes where you have say our ground nesting birds and also some of our generalist predators let's say magpie and hooded crow or grey crow. If you have a situation where these creatures see an individual being flushed off a nest, they tend to be more sort of socially bold and return to the area where the where the bird was sitting on the nest and therefore predate the eggs. More so than um say a skylark or a you know any of our grey nesting birds that we might have in in an urban setting. And there's even there's one study that I really like 
uh, and I referred to it in the in this short piece that I did. It was on peregrines and ravens, and it showed basically where peregrines and ravens occurred, and they were breeding, and where there was a um, rock climbing activity. No peregrines were were fledged. Okay, so I think it was published in two thousand and four, um, and it basically sh- it, it's a fascinating study because it shows you the intellect of 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 uh, ravens. Ravens are incredibly smart creatures. Like uh, as far as I know that. They, they estimate they have the intellect of a four-year-old human. So when the the rock climbers would disturb the ravens and the peregrines, the raven and the peregrine would fly off and the raven would come back to the area first and then predate the nest and the the peregrines would uh, obviously w- would fail. So these are the types of scenarios, you know, in terms of disturbance. So this is why when you go back to it again, there's so many different mechanisms by which generalist predators do better in human landscapes than the non-specialists, if you like. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's the 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 birds off the 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 dogs off a leash is a really it's a really important one. And uh, I mean, even someone just said it to me before we we came on here and said, uh, "I saw your your piece, you know, you know." Um, I have a dog. What's wrong with my dog? I said, there's nothing wrong with your dog. It's you that's, that's the problem. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's the, it's, it's the dog owners. Um, and I, don't, don't get me wrong. I know plenty and I grew up with dogs, but it's just... Um, no, no, I for sure. It, it's, it's a challenging one, like, um, in, in terms of managing it. But, I mean, this is, you know, this is not a new, this is not a new phenomenon in terms of... Uh, human activity so no I, even like even the, uh i think two episodes ago i was i was talking about again you know the the uh, episode was uh, was about future of hunting but a part of that was like that the organizations like you mentioned mountaineering for example are not you know even considering their impact on the environment and you know there you give an example like yeah nests are failing because of a of a of a rock climbing you know, I heard about the oyster catchers failing because of the surfers and, and stuff like yeah. that. So there is like a, um, listen, I just want to get your opinion on that final bit, which is, uh, maybe I'm a little bit of a devil's advocate here, but not entirely. So those ground nesting birds, these are birds who have a life history that almost purposely is not taking advantage of the biggest advantage that birds have, which is ability to fly. Like really? why on earth they're ground nesting? And you know, the 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 question goes along the lines: Are they not deserve to go extinct because they're just not adapted well to the you know the world how is the, how it is? And I, I preface that there's a little bit of a devil's advocate argument here, but you know there is a there is a consideration here. Like why you know what's going on? It's a very pragmatic view, um, and it's a very functional view. I suppose um, you could you could make an argument that there is no place for ground nesting birds in the modern world, but it's very cold, and it's also very much ignoring the the fact that there's dynamics going on in relation to, um, I suppose, the functions that birds give us in terms of you know maybe pest mo- uh, controlling pests or maybe even providing food or even the cultural experiences in that sort of ecosystem services idea looking at the provisioning um the regulatory 
uh, and the cultural services. So that might be the case now, but things might change. So that in a few years or in a in a number of uh, in a number of centuries, if we're all here, God only knows. But anyway, that's a, that's a discussion for another day. Um, another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, if the, if there is that. A situation where you remove that particular cohort, uh, you could remove a whole sort of set of functions which we're not even aware of in terms of their functionality to to humans or to the rest of the system, uh, and that all the syst- birds that are in the trees, or all the all the birds that nest in shrubs, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, would be in the same precarious situation that ground nesting birds are in now. That's that's my only sort of. Uh, non-cold approach to, I mean I'm, I did I did have a situation where a, an individual did say to me you know all these creatures that are going extinct or that are declining you know is it not their fault and it's I suppose sometimes it's such a it's such a coldly direct way of looking at it and um, sometimes it can be hard to come up with a with a with a logical answer to it but the only thing is that I would I would say apart from the fact that it sounds ridiculous, and I know you're being you're you're trying to sort of stir an answer out of me, um, it doesn't protect us against what we don't know, uh, and we don't know the value of these creatures in, into the future, and that's that's probably their greatest value is what we don't know about. You know, I'm kind of well aware that there's the question sounds you know like you said bizarre or just stupid, but then coming with it answer to that is is kind of like difficult you know like when i was at a university uh, uh my professor told me that the 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 most difficult question to or or something to to answer to is, is when you're doing presentation and someone stood stands up and says like <clears throat> this is all rubbish and like oh how am i gonna yeah how am i gonna how am i gonna answer to that so this is a little bit kind of uh that thing well, if, um, you do, if they do do that in a question, I'd say to any student, I'd say, thank you very much for your contribution and move yeah. on. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. like, uh, exactly. Um, look, Barry, uh, final one. Well, how do you think uh situation will pan out for Curlew in Ireland? I came to Ireland in 2007 and, you know, I, I started being interested in, in nature and all that was going on in Ireland. And I think back then I was talking to someone and it's like, hey, the curio is as good as done. It was 2007, seven, eight, right? It was here at 2023. They're still hanging in there. But are they as good as done? No, uh, I don't believe so. Um, and I believe it's sort of a bit of a symbolic response that we're giving to Curlew. Uh, I also have a, a PhD student who's working on Curlew, Grace Walsh. So uh, I I can't say that they're done. <laughs> so um, no, I mean I I I've, I I don't, but I I genuinely don't believe so. I think there's enough of a response now, but I mean it's just what I think is I'm not sure what way it pans out. I don't know if there's going to be, you know, um, clusters of individuals breeding together um, in ten or fifteen years. But you know, in fairness to the LBWS, they are doing things uh, at, the, uh, at the moment, but it's sort of, what I find really frustrating is that, you know, on another species that I was really interested in, in terms of, in terms of grey nesting birds and their association with a specific habitat, we did some re- research on red grouse in 2006 to 2010. 
and we said to the government agencies, and in actual fact, a group of us from uh, NARGC, from Birdwatch Ireland, and from UCD, we wrote a species action plan for the government. And I'm not really sure if it's really been picked up on. My, My concern is that, you know, when we have species that get to populations of two or three thousand, can we act then, please, instead of waiting, or can we act before then? rather than waiting until we get to, you know, hundreds or, or, or tens of birds left breeding. So that's, that's sort of my, my take home out of this is that I do think that the, the bird will survive. It's going to, how it actually materializes, I'm not sure, but the message is why do we keep on having to wait until the, the creatures are, you know, at the edge of extinction or in really, really precarious situations before we we do anything about it. And this goes, this goes across various departments as well. It's not just having a go at a, a MPWS, but there's also elements of you know, the Department of Agriculture which would be able, able to facilitate these, the, the habitats that these creatures are found in. When you're, when you're talk to people, or maybe I just want you to give advice to people who are both who are doing predator control and people who are against lethal predator control, when they talk to each other, when there is a communication going on, what would be your advice to, you know, along which lines to do that communication, to not bash heads, but kind of like a try to come from the point of mutual understanding? I think it's interesting because I think those two cohorts have probably got more in common than one of those cohorts and a policymaker, you know? So... They're really more. <laughs> they're really more close to one another than than they realise. And uh, I sort of again, I, I really like this idea in relation to uh, these conservation processes going on, rather than actual ultimate solutions. Because I, I think the ultimate solutions are just aren't there because the the systems are too dynamic, and we've shown how quickly we can change them um, through human activity. So. I would urge them to to listen and to respect each other's views and to see that there's probably a lot more in common between them uh, than there is divides them, and um, particularly that they won't they both want the same outcome. Yeah, yeah. You know? And finally, if you were in the charge of all that those policies, or you know, maybe you know, like a um, emperor of the universe or whatever, what would you do to save those? Um, ground nesting birds? What would be like a one biggest thing that realistically could happen? Gee, what a question. <laughs> My God almighty. Um, probably spend a couple of months finding out who now, the best policy people were in a couple of different departments in, in, in Ireland or in, in Europe. So by that, it's not actually about you don't want specialists in the area, but you want people who understand the, the, the processes to getting stuff done or to implement it. Like one of the really interesting things is that I, I believe our wildlife legislation is excellent. I, I genuinely believe our wildlife legislation is excellent. I think the way in which it's dealt with and the way it's respected is not. And uh, I, I don't feel that we need in terms of sort of the, the, the in terms of the stick element, I don't think we need anything else. 
we don't need any more pieces of legislation in the in the in the door or anything like that. I think we need people to implement them and to implement them as they were written. That's the that's the first point. So that's the stick dealt with first. And then in terms of the carrot, as I said, I think I would look to find the best people to devise instruments, not laws, but instruments to be able to get conservationists and uh, agriculturalists and foresters and land u- land users to be able to to work together and again this is this is again is a real process driven uh, activity uh, in terms of creating a situation where you have to produce food you have to produce products etc but in a way in which we can provide you know critical amounts of space and critical amounts of habitats into the future and you know in conjunction with the removal of uh, of predators and um, so that you can have these multifunctional landscapes operating again so they produce food they produce timber they produce clean water they produce clean air etc and that we have the provision of biodiversity within those landscapes barry thank you very much it's been a pleasure thanks tommy Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave me five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This is great help for me and for the podcast. And while you're already there, don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show. 